first of all, you're all very welcome uh, again. As I said, most of you have, have joined us previously. But for those of you who don't know, my name is Una Gilvari and I'm the Chief Technical Officer uh, with Healthcare Informed. And we've been doing a number of these webinar series for the residential care sectors where we're sharing some of our, uh, our, our experience and, and, and knowledge and uh, some of the research work that we've been doing in particular areas and trying just to, I suppose, support um, the services that are out there and, and just to uh, uh, clarify the, the, the knowledge points that we have utilized uh, with our clients to date. So today the focus is uh, in relation to internal audit, which kind of pulls a lot of the stuff that we've been working on um, or that we've been presenting to you over the last number of months together um, in relation to that monitoring and evaluation process that is, is so central to our quality management safety systems and how we can utilize that audit tool to its most effective manner. So with that, we'll get these slides rocking and rolling. As said, most of you know who we are, but we're, we're a professional services provider. Uh, so we are, are focused in a number of, of, of areas, but we work a lot in relation to the residential sectors and disabilities, mental health also, um, supporting and, and providing evidence-based best practice tools and techniques uh, for our clients. So we have a range of different uh, backgrounds within the organization, uh, which all supports, as I said, in the development of those tools uh, so we can support you as best we can. So before we launch into internal audit and, and, and the processes involved into it, I suppose what I want to do and what I generally do, those of you who have attended before, is that we, we just really ask ourselves, well, why are we here? Or what is internal audit all about? And, and really what is the goal and the focus of internal audit uh, within our services? Um, I may have mentioned this previously, we completed um, a, a research paper quite recently, and it was looking at a number of healthcare inquiries, both in Ireland and within the UK. And, and we looked really at the reoccurring issues uh, that we could identify and the trends that were being identified um, throughout these inquiries and seeing if we could look at some of the common themes and but take the learnings from that in that regard. And when we put all that data together, we looked at all the papers and, and the information, the reports that were out there, we saw that there was very definitely uh, common themes throughout those inquiries uh, when we did that comparative analysis. And one of the central ones relate to monitoring, audit and data. As you can see, governance, which we've talked about previously, complaint management, risk management, we've talked about these previously and, and in relation to some of the other webinars, but the monitoring audit and data came through very strongly where there were significant problems and issues with the healthcare organization's uh, audit process and their monitoring uh, capabilities that allowed a lot of failings to occur or certainly, um, it certainly allowed those failings to continually reoccur and that they weren't being picked up when they should have been at, at a very early stage. So if we just look at maybe a couple of those just to pick up on some of the learnings in relation to that. We looked at the mid-staff mid uh, inquiry, I mean, quite a famous one. This is where 400 people died as a result of receiving poor care over a 50-month period between 2005 and 2009. And they identified that there was an insidious negative culture where the management had a tolerance of poor standards and, and they really uh, disengaged from their leadership responsibilities throughout. 
But when we look at the findings specifically in relation to audit, they identified within the report that where audits were carried out, there was no robust mechanism in place to ensure that changes were being implemented. So although the audit practice was being completed, they, the findings weren't being taken on by management and, to, and driven through to ensure that changes were implemented to ensure that uh, the, the corrective and preventive actions were implemented in, in, in that case. They also identified that when re-audits were required, so where there were significant problems identified within a particular area, often those audits weren't being uh, completed. So there was no um, evidence of, of uh, strategic focus in particular areas where they knew there was particular problems or failings in relation to it. And they also found that the management team argued that it wasn't their responsibility to address the audit findings. So as we often talk about John out the back in the shed, oh, well, that's his responsibility. It's his job to sort out the audit findings rather than taking on that governance culture um, of, of that monitoring and effective management being driven from the top down, that it was really just put out in a secular place rather than being embraced by, by the governance model and, and taken from the top down. So they found in their recommendations that they were recommending that the board should audit, review audit process and outcomes regular, regularly, which, which is obvious enough. A little bit closer to home in relation to the Port Leash perinatal deaths investigation, where, where there was four newborn babies over six years and, and the subsequent management of, their, of the patients was, was reviewed. When they looked specifically at audit, they found that there was no strategic plan for audit across the hospital. And then again, there was no dedicated staff member with overall oversight of this audit program. Applicable guidelines then were not being incorporated into the audit process, so they were just completing very high level audits, skimming across the requirements, rather than looking at the guidelines that should be incorporated to ensure that we're not only looking at application of the regulations, but also driving towards continuous improvement through evidence-based best practice and ensuring those guidelines are incorporated. And as I said, although these are hospital specific, they are very much uh, applicable to the healthcare sector across the board. And in that recommendation, they recognize that audit activities required significant improvement so that learning could be achieved, that it wasn't just a case and um, that the audit was being done, the or tick in the box, the audit is done. They were taking those actions and driving real learnings from them in that regard. When we looked at the cervical, uh, the cervical screening program and, and the inquiry in relation to that uh, for, for the scoping inquiry in relation to audit in that field, they found that planning and governance for the audit process appeared to be inadequate. So again, there was no taking on of the, 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 uh, the model from the governance perspective and again, pushing it down through the organization. And they found that the analysis of the results was sporadic and informal. So again, when the audits were being done, there was um, a, the, the, the results, the outcomes that were, were, were coming out from those audits were not really being integrated into the management model and again, driven out in that regard. So their recommendation was that they were looking for common, robust and externally validated approaches to the design, conduct, evaluation and oversights of audits. So that's what the, the model that they were looking to implement. So 
they're some of the, the key themes, as I said, that we identified when we looked at some of the analysis, um, uh, uh, when we looked at serious incident reviews and, and some of the inquiries related to it. But I wanted to look as well at some of the HICWA-specific findings in relation to audit that they're finding on a day-to-day -day basis when they're out within, uh, within the facilities. In, in relation to the HICWA findings, Regulation 23 under the Governance and Management, where we are generally going to see those audit findings, um, one of the, the key areas they looked at, again, governance and leadership arrangements within the residential centre required review to ensure that appropriate systems were in place to effectively monitor the service delivered and to ensure that it was safe, appropriate, consistent and met the regulatory requirements. So again, they found that the overall system wasn't being uh, supported by that governance and leadership management model to ensure that it was going to be filtered throughout the organisation. In another inspection report, they identified that there were inadequate arrangements for ensuring that compliance with regulation was achieved and maintained, and we know that the most appropriate tool in that regard is in relation to utilising our audit tools. They found that there was an, a robust system for audit was required to ensure that all areas of practice were sufficiently monitored. For example, they found that there was failings in relation to supervision and auditing of housekeeping practices and that their procedures were inadequate to support them. They found in another there was insufficient management, oversight, audit and quality improvement. So again, generally, it's all landing back uh, with the governance model, as we have seen. Um, throughout many of the, the webinars we've talked about with IPC and, and complaints, you know, again, the governance model being so, so important and those roles and responsibilities requiring to be defined to support an effective process within the, the service. An improvement plan uh, as a result of all audits was not evident to ensure adequate resources were provided for the effective service. Action plans to address uh, deficits found were not consistently development, developed and the, the system in place was therefore not conforming to a continuous improvement process. And another finding, inspectors found that a false audit was an audit of false documentation and did not fully inform quality improvement. So that's just a flavor of some of the findings and failings um, that HICWA have found over the last uh, number of uh, number of months in relation to audit practice. So now we know how important that audit is, and we know that if we don't have a very com comprehensive and effective audit model in place, uh, that it can have a very serious outcome in relation to the services that are being provided. But now let's have a look, I suppose, and consider what is internal audit and what are the best tools and techniques to apply it. Now, I would say generally when we talk about this, this is normally a full day of, of training. So obviously you're getting very much the Reader's Digest version in, in relation to it, but it's just a flavor, I suppose, of, of, of the type of approach that we take in relation to audit. So when we define internal audit, and it is important that we look at that type of definition where it talks about a systematic, independent, and documented process for obtaining audit evidence and evaluating it objectively to determine the extent with audit criteria fulfilled. Now, there's a lot of stuff there. It's systematic. If I do the audit, if you do the audit, there should be a system in relation to how the audit is carried out. Independent is probably the most challenging element of internal audit for residential care services because 
generally we're working with quite a, a small team um, and we don't generally have a large number of people that we can draw from that are truly independent of the processes that we wish to audit and that's something that we look at when we talk about independence by trying to broaden the scope of audit by incorporating a much broader uh, group of auditors into our audit practice, that it's not just one or two people that are completing audit. We want to broaden the scope of audit, empower people to be involved in that audit practice that generally may not be involved. And I know that we talk a lot about, uh, you know, the, the, the auditors being capable uh, and having a general understanding to complete an audit process. But I, I would argue that anyone can be involved in the audit practice and and it, it is very important to be able to empower the broadest scope possible within our organization to be engaged in the audit process and it can only help to serve the organization as we increase the knowledge of the services throughout the people that are are are, are, uh, are within our staffing group so independent is challenging there's no doubt about that one that's probably the most difficult one we're going to hit a documented process, you know, uh, as I said, in God we trust all others bring data. If it did, if it wasn't written down, it didn't happen. Um, and when we talk about documentation, I'm not talking about tick boxes. I'm not talking about checklists. This is documentation in relation to audit practice. And we're going to look at how we can document findings in relation to that. So a documented process for obtaining audit evidence. This isn't about, well, I think this isn't right, or I think that could be done differently. This is about evidence. And we talk about evidence in relation to the basis of a court of law. You know, and that's a bit of extreme, but when we're looking at our audit findings, we need to be able to base our findings on the regulation, on the legislation, on the guidance, whatever the best practice that's available. This has to be, in, uh, your findings in audit have to be embedded in fact. And we need to be able to document that fact so that in 12 months time, if somebody asks me about that finding, I'm very clear in relation to it. And we'll have a look at how our audit reports should look in that regard. And evaluating it objectively. With audit, it's not phone a friend. You have to be able to take a position whether it is not compliant or it is substantially compliant or compliant. Um, so we need to have very clear guidance provided to our auditors so they're in a position to make those types of decisions. It's really important, though, to note that audit is a snapshot in a point of time. This is not a gap analysis. It's not a, you're not going to be in a position with the amount of time generally we're allocated for internal audit. You're not going to be able to review everything that you need to do as part of a, a, a section that you're uh, auditing. But what you are trying to do is come with as much information and knowledge to the audit practice so that you're aware of the high risk areas within that process and that you can focus in on those particular areas. How we do that is in relation to our audit preparation, which we're going to look at in a couple of minutes. And again, I said all about the evidence. And as I said, there is a systematic process that if I do it and you do it, it's done the same way. However, our findings can be very different. Of course they can, because we may look at very different areas, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. Uh, it's, it's, it's in relation to the focus based on the preparation work that we've done prior to audit.
There are a number of, of advantages to really comprehensive internal auditing. You know, many uh, places, it is a real grind for internal audits, like, oh, we just need to get this done. You know, if we don't have this done, we're going to get into bother, rather than embracing it as a continuous improvement model. But there are real advantages to a comprehensive internal audit process. Obviously, we're looking towards regulatory compliance. That's a given. But it also certainly helps to improve our governance. If we ask the appropriate questions when we're auditing, it certainly builds um, a stronger governance model or ensures that we have, uh, that we can ask the questions to ensure that that model is put in place. Of course, it drives continuous improvement. And definitely, if we can incorporate those best practice requirements, if we can look a little bit broader than just the regulation and the legislation. You know, if we can look a little bit outside, look maybe at a, a nice guideline or some of the other best practices that are coming down the line in other sectors, that's going to be hugely valuable to us in driving continuous practice or continuous improvement. And certainly is very impressive for anybody that comes in and is reviewing our, our internal audit. And I would say in relation to internal audit, generally when regulators come in, if they feel that there is a robust internal audit process, it gives them, and we've talked about this before, that warm, fuzzy feeling, um, and that there's an open engagement with it. What we would always say in relation to internal audit, you find it before anybody else does. And generally the regular regulator accepts that. They, they accept that if you're ahead of it, you've identified internal audit and you're actively working on a process, then it allows them to step back from an interrogation uh, that might have come your way otherwise if it hadn't been identified. So for us, we would always approach the open hand approach, get out there, be as robust and as, as, as um, tenacious as possible within your internal audit process and find the issues before they're found for you uh, in, in a very different manner. It promotes that leadership and empowerment. And that's what I was talking about, trying to engage as many people as possible within internal audit. And, and as I said, be it from the finance, be it from the, all the different sectors in the departments to engage them because a fresh pair of eyes is of true value. Um, even if they're not in any way directly related to that, and ideally they won't be in relation to the service being provided, there's always value to be asked. And even by asking the basic questions, it's, it certainly helps to ensure that our system is as robust as possible. Obviously, it supports those ongoing monitoring of services. I said identifying problems that possibly have, could have gone under the radar if we did not have a robust internal audit process in place. It can identify some trends that if we have some, you know, some issues coming up internal audit that may be indicating of a systematic problem that we may not have identified otherwise. It improves organizational learning and communication. So again, taking the findings that are there and ensuring that we're taking the learnings that if a problem has been identified in internal audit in a particular sector, could that problem uh, be replicated in another particular area? So, you know, taking that learning and again, by engaging as many people as possible, it in, improves the, the, the overall uh, understanding within it. Low organizational disruption, generally, if we, if we can complete our internal audits internally, we can try and get them done quickly uh, within a, a packaged amount of time. It doesn't require everybody to down tools like if we were in the middle of a, a, a significant external audit. Generally, it's low cost. Uh, but again, it's really important. This can't be just another thing that's plopped on top of some 
responsibility and roles and responsibilities, you know, this is something that we have to give allocated time to if we really want to be able to ensure that our internal audit system is as robust as possible. It can't be something that someone is trying to do in conjunction with something else. We need to be able to have protected time in relation to our audit practice. Standardization of methods, again, if I go into review of process and you go into review of process, you know, are we seeing that there's a standardization of the way that it's being implemented on the floor so that observational process should be able to support us in that regard and improving the communications again uh, we've talked about obviously there are challenges as i said in relation to that protective time a real demand on resources everybody is working two jobs i'm, I'm very clear on that but you know it is so so important to be able to have that protective time uh, in relation to order and a lot of that goes down to the planning uh, beforehand it can be ineffective, as I said, if this becomes a tick box exercise, you might as well be throwing stones in a bucket. You know, it's not going to have the outcomes that we're looking for in relation to it. And that's going to be very evident when we have regulators come on site. They can be difficult to close out. We have a finding and, oh, well, we need to do something about that, but that's not something we can do in the short term and it drags on and on and on. And if there's not effective monitoring and a value, you know, monitoring process, watching the outcomes from those audits, they can just sit there and gather dust and again not going to give that warm fuzzy feeling to our regulators if they see something that was open two years ago and remains on the list and i said the struggle is that independence how are we going to be able to step back from our processes if we're all very much involved in them on a day-to-day -day basis very quickly i just want to talk to you about the principles of auditing because as auditors as auditees um, as people who are developing internal audit schedules, these are really important to keep in your keep in mind. Um, as I said, these come from the ISO 9, uh, 9011. Uh, that's an internal audit uh, ISO standard. It's not mandatory. It's it's a best practice standard. Um, so they they identify these principles. Number one being integrity, and this is about auditors performing their work ethically, honestly, and with responsibility, um, obviously. So it's not, uh, oh, look, don't write that down. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll sort that out. You know, that's not what we want. This is about looking at the systems and the processes. And if we take anything away from today, it has to be that, that when we are completing our internal audits, we've got to make it really, really clear to the auditees this is about auditing systems and processes that we have in place. This is not about auditing your performance or anything like that. It's about looking at those systems and processes and seeing, are they being implemented? If they are being implemented, are they reflective of the requirements? And are they achieving the outcomes that we need to achieve? So it's, as I said, we need to take the personal, the personal out of it. And I know from personal experience, when you're, when you're being audited, it's, it's like somebody is criticizing your firstborn. You can be very sensitive about it, but we need to, again, reiterate time. And again, this is about the systems. It's about the processes. So that's what we really want, want to keep uh, central to our focus. We need to be competent before, you know, before we embark on audit. We're talking about broadening it out. In many cases, that competency is something that can only be learned. So that's why we generally would recommend that people are linked together. With, so you might have a, a, an experienced auditor with a less exp experienced auditor so they can build up their experience in audit practice because you know that, that is really important. They need to perform their work in an impartial manner. So we want fair and unbiased. Again, if we have the evidence, 
that's what it's all about. It's not, well, I don't particularly like that way of doing it or they, it is all about the evidence in relation to, and obviously we need to be sensitive to any influences that may be exerted on their judgment. So again, we need to try and step back and just look at the systems for what they are rather than the individuals that are implementing them. We need to perform, uh, provide you uh, professional care. Uh, so we need to, to ensure that we give it the time and the effort and the focus that is required. And, and, and as I said, that can be difficult unless we have that protected time. And we want to be able to make reasons, reasoned judgments, as I said, utilizing the evidence that's there. The independence, we've talked about that being really, really difficult to achieve, but we're looking for them to be independent of the audit or the activity, uh, if at all practical, uh, in a manner that's free from bias and conflict of interest. And auditors should maintain objectivity throughout the audit process to ensure that their conclusions are again based on evidence. Obviously, confidentiality is important. Once an audit is completed, it shouldn't be discussed in the canteen later. Wait, and I tell you what was happening abroad in such a unit. This is about we have to have discretion and, pro and proper handling of any sensitive and confidential information. That will also be the case in our report writing that we ensure that we are utilizing GDPR in relation to our report writing, which is important. Evidence-based approach, all evidence must be verifiable. So in 12 months time, if that audit is pulled out and they have a particular finding, there should be enough verifiable evidence provided that I can track it back. So this is in, even in relation to policies and procedures you might be reviewing, write the policy number, the revision um, that is required on it. If we're utilizing uh, resident records, we record the ID numbers. So, you know, important that we have some traceability in relation to our findings. We have effective sampling. So again, if we're looking at a particular process uh, that's a, for, for resident application, we need to look across the spectrum, see what are the dependency levels that are there, and then stagger our sampling depending on where are the, the highest risks when we look at our audit practice. So we may need to focus on, on, on particular high risk areas. That risk-based approach, so I've mentioned that. So again, when we're planning our audits, so there may be some audits that need to be done more than once a year. Some audits, low risk audits that we haven't had any particular findings in that are, are standardized, consistent approaches. They may be lower risk audits, may need to only be completed once a year. Um, but say in relation to IPC with obviously the huge amount of change that went down, that may need to be done monthly, quarterly, whatever the case may be. So it depends on the level of risk in a particular area. If there is a new requirement that's out, obviously we may need to prioritize that audit within our schedule. Okay, so in relation to the process flow and how we do our audit, and, and we need to, I mean, we're looking at this quite quickly, very quickly, forward planning, prep for audit. Probably the most important element is, is in relation to our audit prep we're going to look at. Conducting, reporting, doing our actions, our follow-up and close out, and we're just going to look at these briefly. Your internal audit process, policy is really important and it has to give proper direction to your auditors and your auditees. You need to be clear on the roles and responsibilities and also detail about the audit scope. Now the audit scope we're going to look at in the audit schedule, but remember when we're talking about audit scope are those bite-sized chunks of audit that we're going to do. So are we going to look at um, complaints, incident management, um, residence rights? So what are the little chunks we're going to take? And within those chunks, what are the specific documents that need to be considered in relation to it? And we're, look, we're going to look at that in the audit schedule. But within the internal audit policy, 
I want to see how are people going to access records? What prep should they do beforehand? How long should the audits be? How are they going to complete the audits? How are they going to do record sampling? So direction on all of this. How are they going to record their audit findings? How are they going to do their closing meetings? How will they report it? What compliance rating will they use? How are management going to monitoring these audit findings? How are they going to close out the findings? Are we going to do verification and re-audit? What trending and analysis are we going to do on audit? And how, what information systems, if any, if we're going to use the likes of QPulse or whatever. So that policy and procedure really has to be very comprehensive and robust. And that's going to direct our standardization of how we're going to do the audits day in, day out, and ensure that if I do it or you do it, it's the same result. A lot of interest in relation to the audit schedule and what that should look like. Now, this is just a mock-up of one that I've done. So in this model, I've picked resident rights. So what are the sort of things? So from the outset, as in, if, if I was in charge of internal audits within a facility, at the beginning of the year, I would put out an internal audit schedule that would cover the 12 months. And within that, the heavy lifting is done. And this is where you would detail what are the policies and procedures that need to be reviewed prior to that audit? What are the, rele uh, the, the relevant sections of the SIs or the standards? And if there's any other documents that I should be reviewing prior to that. So by doing this level of work on the outset in your internal audit schedule, it takes the heavy lifting off the auditors when they get to their bonds. So they say, right, I'm on residence rights tomorrow or in next week and I'm doing an audit. What's the prep I need to get done? Well, I know I need to look at those two policies or that policy and the residence charter. I need to look at that document as well. And then I need to look at Reg 9 in SI 415. I need to look at standard 1.1 in the standards. Now, this is a very big undertaking and it is heavy lifting in relation to it. But once you do it once, you have the bones of it together. But this is what it takes. And there you can see here, I've put in some guidance documents promoting a care environment that's free from restrictive practice and the human rights approach. So those sort of guidance documents also to direct some of the more uh, continuous improvement aspects of it. Um, here I've detailed the auditor, an individual audit number, an audit owner. And then in this case, I've divided it up into quarters. You can divide it up into months or whatever the case may be, but this just gives flexibility of three months that you must complete that audit within that quarter. So this is just an idea to look at. I've prepped, this is something that's a bit more detailed. This is an IPC governance. So this is just for governance. So what are the sort of documents we're looking for? So the policies and procedures in relation to IPC, but also terms of reference for teams, agendas for teams, job descriptions, KPIs, training programs, risk management register, IPC service agreements. So upfront, I'm thinking, what are all the things that need to be looked at to ensure that this audit is as comprehensive as possible? There's a lot of documents here. And from that, that's going to lead to a lot of prep work that's going to be required. And we'll talk about that in a second. Obviously, really important to, to uh, have, as part of the forward planning process, we need to have our internal auditors trained. Uh, so we run audit, internal audit training days all the time. Uh, and, and there's also lead auditor training programs that are run by SQT five-day programs which are much bigger but generally uh, you know one day audit training program will get them where they need to be and then linking them with more experienced auditors uh, to get the experience in that ensure that they have a ability to access the records if you are giving somebody the power to complete an audit and process 
obviously make sure that they can they can access the records. When we go to step two in our audit prep, the auditor should make contact with the owner. This doesn't have to be anything very detailed or complicated. Just meet them, speak to them, and say, I'm doing an audit. This is what we hope to cover. This is the timelines that we're, we'll be doing it in, um, and, and, and in, in that regard. So that's just to make that initial agreement. Reviewing the relevant documentation is the most important part for an auditor's work in relation to it. And that is taking that documentation that has been listed in that audit schedule and spending the time in looking at it. So you're knowledgeable going in, in relation to it. What's the relevant reg? What's the relevant legislation? What's the best practice? What are the policies and procedures currently saying? So we can already start our audit by saying, well, are our policies and procedures reflective of what the regulations already said? So that, that's already, you can do that in the prep. The, the practice is just the application of it. What are the other control documents? So as I said, those org charts, job descriptions, if they're relevant, do I need to look at any minutes, KPIs? Previous audit reports, really important. If you're doing an audit on residence rights this week, look at what happened in the last residence right audit and see what were the findings there were they closed out because if they weren't that's going to be your first finding in your residence rights audit the next time round. look at the inspection reports that came out was there any findings in relation to your service was there any findings in relation to resident rights the last time that hick were on site so again building up your knowledge and also building up where are the risk areas where has there been problems before i've only got a small amount of time so what do I need to pick very quickly and work on? Were there any Q QIPs open from previous audits? Were any complaints raised? Do we have any instance open in relation to, to residence rights? And again, if, if they're particular to IPC, you can look at uh, outbreak reports or, or review reports in that regard. So this, that prep data will make you infinitely stronger uh, when you go out on site to actually or go, go out and actually start to implement the audit. I said the opening meeting is just really, yeah, okay, we're he heading off today. This is what I intend to do. This is what I'm going to be covering. Collecting evidence. Well, we talk about the triangulation method, and this is what uh, Hickway utilize also, the walk around the interview and the documentation, that observation, seeing what's being implemented and reflecting on that in relation to your policies and procedures. Are they being implemented in accordance to our policies and procedures? We've already looked at, remember, are the policies and procedures reflective of the requirements? Now we're looking at is the pro is what's being implemented reflective of those policies and procedures? Um, interviewing the, the 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 staff, understanding you know, getting an understanding for their level of of comfort in relation to the process as it being applied and their understanding of it. Obviously, that could link into their training records, seeing their level of interaction in in that regard, and then the documentation. So the output from that process. Is it reflective of the requirements? Are the care plans being updated? The assessments being done? Um, you know, linking through and seeing those outcomes and seeing then again how they link in to the overall process. And again, as we said, in God we trust all our others bring data. One of the, the things within order to say, um, have you done X? And an auditor might say, yeah, I've done that. Well, show me. It's about show me the data. I need to see it. Uh, so that's that's really important as an auditor. Audit tools are something that uh, obviously are, are very, uh, very useful and they can provide an excellent support. Now, I say a support because 
um, HCI provide a full set of audit tools that are, are, are very comprehensive. We'll have a quick look at those, but it's it's really important that they do not you know, blinker people in relation to their audit practice. They are a prompt and a support and certainly will direct you and put you in the right direction. But as an auditor, you need to be tenacious enough to move in a particular direction if, if that is what is required of the audit. It's not about completing the audit tool and getting all the questions answered. It's about having an effective audit process. So they collect, they, they are very handy because they collate all the requirements and then they you can also incorporate good practice so that will drive continuous improvement um, and then we can utilize findings depending on how we build these to use graphs uh, in relation to it but you really important they have to be kept up to date um, and, and as I said you must still audit this is just a sample of one of the audit tools that we have say in relation to this residence rights so in this case we have excel sheet you have your drop down you're either compliant or not compliant we have mandatory is m best practice is signified by the code bp and then if you're not compliant you do the classification now in relation to classification what i would recommend is that you would utilize the classification that hickway utilize that being not compliant red orange um substantially compliant or compliant we want to try and make sure that our internal audit practice is as reflective as a general HICWA inspection. So that would be a recommendation, but having said a lot, you're not mandated to use any other, any particular type of compliance. So from this, within our audit tools, we have all of the mandatory requirements and best practice. And then you have a section for additional criteria where you can put in your own requirements, as I said, following your own audit practice. And from that, you can also detail whether you're compliant or not compliant in that regard. For our audit tools, we can see the, the, the percentage complete or incomplete at the top. And then based on your responses, it will give you your overall compliance total uh, or lack thereof. And then it will, it will rate your orange and red levels and the graphs are provided. Those graphs are just very handy to be able to pull out that and then utilize in your management team meetings or whatever the case may be. And again, it gives you a section then at the bottom to allow you to complete your QIPs. So that's just an example of, uh, of an, audit uh, an audit tool. Really important when we're doing the audit that we record our documentation properly, because when it comes to writing up that audit report, we want to have that evidence uh, in relation to it. Complete the closing meeting, give a chance you know, to discuss the findings with your auditor. And again, give positive feedback. You know, nobody likes to get beaten around the head all the time you know that we want to be able to say you know that was really good that you know that was being implemented effectively you know there's learnings here maybe for the the wider organization with how well that that process is working so it's important to give that feedback uh, as part of the closing meeting within the report and we'll look at an example facts not false give the evidence and as i said give that positive feedback and with the compliance rating, we would recommend the HICWA model, but that's entirely up to yourselves. Now, this is a hard copy version of what an audit report. You have your audit number, your number, your area audited, your date audited. But what I wanted to just bring out is how we would present a non-compliance. So you can see here, section 9.1 of SI 415 of 2013 details. The registered provider should carry on the business, blah, 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 as regard for the sex, religious, 
persuasion, uh, racial origin, culture, blah, 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 of each resident. On review of R001 residence right policy, no reference was made to this requirement or how it applied within the facility risk rating, red. So what we're doing here is we're saying, this is the requirement. I, there was no evidence of that found within your policy and procedure. And on that basis, we would allocate it a risk rating of red. Okay. Uh, similarly, in the next section, so you have your requirement detailed from the SI. There is no evidence within the RR residence right policy um, that has been reviewed since its initial release in 2011. So it was said that you have to review your policies every three years. We found in evidence that RR001 residence right policy has not been reviewed since 2011. And we risk rated that as orange. Okay. So that's the way. Ideally, we want to try and present it. Reg, finding, risk rating, okay, in that regard. Now, some of you will utilize the soft copy or the software models, but this is the type of presentation that you're looking for. In relation to audit findings, get your QIPs done and get an owner on them and a target date and make sure that they're risk rated. So generally from the findings, put them into a QIP some way that they're not going to be forgotten and left uh, to, to get dust on them and, and try and get some corrective and preventive actions. I'm not going to get into to the differences between those. Make sure that we complete the follow-up. So they have to be monitored by a management team. If, they, if the all open findings aren't going to be monitored, they're just not going to get done. So we want to try and drive them and get them done in a timely manner. And if there are wider considerations, budgetary requirements, whatever the case may be, just detail that and keep it updated and keep it, keep it fresh. Um, the audit owner is responsible for making sure that all of the activities as they're being completed are detailed within the QIP record, as I said, so that it's live. And you may need to do re-audit depending on the findings that are there. When you have all the QIPs done, then you can close your audit on that ground. But it's really important, and this has to be detailed in your internal audit policy, that you have an escalation process. So if I'm responsible overall for um, the internal audit uh, actions that are there, and if they're not being done, if I'm not getting feedback, if nobody's engaging with me, if I can't get anybody to drive out these, we have to be able to escalate it to management so that they're aware that there are problems and they are not being addressed. We don't want to find ourselves, like if we look back to those, um, those uh, inquiries, where they were saying, A, the management team said, it's not my job, or B, they said, well, we didn't know about them. Nobody told us that there was a problem. We don't want to find ourselves in that. So that escalation process is really, really important. That if something is sitting on the shelf month after month and nothing is happening, that means that problem is still there. And if it's still there, it's, it's a problem that needs to be raised to management. So it's really important that we have that visibility of the findings that are there and take the learnings. You know, these are a gift that we've been given in relation to the audit findings. We've been, we, we, we've identified a problem, let's take the learnings from them. So don't just hide that knowledge under the, under the bed. Um, it's a really important that we communicate those findings out to staff so that there can be overall learnings in that regard. If we're talking about continuous improvement, I would recommend that you have KPIs in place for your internal audits. Uh, some examples, scheduled versus completed, closed out during the period, high risk audit findings identified, QIPs raised uh, from internal audits, Q QIPs closed out on target, or QIPs over, date, oh, uh, over target. 
So that's an example, but it's important that you have internal audits up there in your K K KPI model because it is something that is very, um, uh, very easy to, to, to actually rate and, and put numerical value on in relation to it. That was an incredibly fast 45 minutes. So it's full day of training packed into a very uh, fast speaking 45 minutes. Um, in relation to HCI and the supports that we can give you, there are a full set of audit tools available similar to the ones that I showed you there. Um, they're available on our uh, Care Tools website. Um, Rosemary has been super kind and she's allowed a coupon code. It's a long one, HCI webinar audit. So get 20% off. And if you can't use the code, just get in contact with Rosemary, she'll sort it out. Um, and, and they're available to the end of July um, for, for those people who attend the webinars. Um, but as I said, it's, it's, it's not that it's rocket science, it's not, but it does require real engagement from management team in relation to audit. And it really does require um, buildup of knowledge and understanding uh, by the overall service in relation to um, the, 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 the benefits of a comprehensive internal audit practice within the organization. Thank you very much uh, for attending. We're going to be taking a break from the webinar series now for a little while. Um, I'm going to go on my holidays, well, maybe for like two days, but that won't stop the webinar series. But we will be back, I presume, Rosemary, um, in the autumn. And yes, we have, we're hoping September. Too uh, we'll have more information. So hopefully we can keep it going and uh, we'll keep the engagement from people. And again, thank you very much for taking your time. And if we can be of any assistance to you at any stage, please feel free to drop us a line.